Hello, this is Philip Shuey. I work at the Joint Quantum Institute, and this is one of a series of podcasts that we do on interesting quantum-related subjects. I'm here with my JQI colleague, Charles Clark, who is also Joint Director of JQI. We're going to do three podcasts on a common theme, and the commonality here is the year 1932. We're going to do podcasts on the discovery of deuterium, the discovery of positronium, and the discovery of the neutron, all three of which, believe it or not, came about in one year. So, Charles, um, tell us, why 1932? What was going on in that year? What was in the air? I think there were six Nobel Prizes, one in chemistry and five in physics, that were given for work done in that year. So it was a remarkable time, and basically our understanding of atomic and nuclear structure really went through a sea change in that year. A lot of the mysterious pieces just fell into place. Could we go back just a little bit and talk about the very idea of isotopes? We all know about elements in the periodic table. Uh, You have a a, a nucleus with protons and neutrons, and then who would have thought that there would be several kinds of uh, copper or several kinds of lead with different nuclear composition. How did that idea come about? By 1932, uh, chemistry was quite a mature science. The periodic table was known more or less in the same form that it is today. And there's very good practical understanding of uh, chemistry as being based on elements. The basic building block of an element was an atom, uh, all atoms of the same element being alike and then they would group together to form molecules, which are the basic structure of chemistry. Well, in the, um, I don't know, around 1913, I guess it was, J.J. Uh, Thompson performed an experiment on the element neon. That's a gas that's very easy to work with, and he uh, had a device which was what we would call today a form of mass spectrometer, and he ionized the neon gas and sent it through a combination of electric and magnetic fields, and this would cause a deflection of the neon ion by uh, an amount proportional to the ratio of its electric charge to its mass. And he found that there were two components of the element neon that had slightly different masses. So he was pretty sure it wasn't another element. It was just it was a different right. species it, of of course uh, that's of, that's uh, that's an important point. So after that discovery, and he used a you know highly purified sample of neon, so he's confident that there wasn't a chemical impurity. After that experiment, uh, there's much other work. Sadi uh, made a systematic study of many isotopes, and it was quickly established that many atoms in the periodic table would occur in multiple. Uh, mass species, but for all practical purposes, they seem to be chemically identical, the same atom. So at the beginning of 1932, um, it was the case, was it, that many isotopes of of heavier elements were known, uh, lithium, beryllium, oxygen, but ironically not yet isotopes of the lightest element, hydrogen. There wasn't an extra hydrogen isotope. Why was that? Why was it so hard to find hydrogen isotopes up until then? Indeed, there were many isotopes were known. There's a pretty good catalog of uh, isotopes had been established. And in fact, uh, Yuri, the the discoverer of deuterium, drew up a chart that he kept on his laboratory wall that showed a pattern of the isotopes that seemed to indicate you could follow a path that would 
produce a heavy isotope of hydrogen, an isotope of mass 2, as it's called. That is, mm -hmm. it's a, it has a mass which is roughly twice the mass of the basic hydrogen atom. Most of these isotopes, in fact, I think probably all of the isotopes known then had been discovered by mass spectrometry. So you would think that mass spectrometry would be a, an excellent vehicle for discovering an um, isotope of hydrogen because the mass difference factor of two would give the the largest discrimination between signals that's possible for any element. So you ought to be able to heat up hydrogen, shoot it through a magnet, and then the two would be uh, strip the electron off, and then exactly. it ought to exhibit itself as, that's as a, right. a one-fold hydrogen, a two-fold heavy, three-fold hydrogen. As you've described it, that experiment is very simple, and here is where there's a difference between chemistry and physics. Mm -hmm. Because as people who have worked with hydrogen know, if you put hydrogen into a mass spectrometer, the first thing you see is a huge signal in the mass 2 channel. Because hydrogen comes, when you buy it at the drugstore, you get it <laughs> as a molecule. You get hydrogen gas, H2. It's two hydrogen atoms bonded together. And when you knock off one electron, you get a, a chemical species that has one unit of electric charge and two units of mass. Mm. So it has the signal of the deuterium, but everyone knew that what they were seeing was molecular hydrogen. But a lot of people don't know that when they talk about hydrogen here on Earth, it's almost never single hydrogen atoms by themselves. The hydrogen that, that most people are familiar with is locked up in water, H2O, two yeah. hydrogen atoms and an oxygen. Yeah. So you see you have this huge molecular signal in the same place where the mass signal of, of deuterium would be, and it's just the natural abundance is so small there'd be no way of uh, discriminating for it. Well, Yuri had a vision which it just seems to me to be prescient, and he recognized that if you used the Bohr theory of atomic structure, you could predict where an absorption or an emission line of a hydrogen atom of mass 2 would be. And so he decided instead of using uh, mass spectroscopy, he would look at the optical emission spectrum of uh, a hydrogen and see if he could find a line, one of the emission lines, in the place which the Bohr theory predicted an isotope of mass 2 to be. So the Bohr model says that for a single mass hydrogen, uh, you're going to get one kind of spectrum, electrons hopping between energy levels. If you have a deuteron, a twice heavy hydrogen, the spectrum of that same electron, but, but with uh, two nucleons there in the, in the nucleus, the spectrum's going to be different. And he set out to look for those yeah. special lines. Yeah. The spectral lines that Yuri and his team looked at uh, are, were in the visible. One is red, it's called the Balmer alpha, and the, the, another one is in blue called Balmer beta. And these are, these are uh, optical emissions that result from transitions uh, between two excited states of the hydrogen atom. So Yuri's experiment is a, spectrosco a bit of spectroscopy. He set up uh, a sample of hydrogen with some, presumably, he was hoping, some deuterium there. And, and you heat it up. You say the deuterium is there at one part in 10,000. Is it hard to yeah. see a spectral line that's just so wispy compared to all the others? The first time that Yuri 
did this, he calculated where the line of mass two should be. He also calculated where a line of mass three should be. Mm. That's what we now call tritium. I think just about the very first experiment that he did, he saw a very weak feature exactly where the Bohr model had predicted it. You imagine there's a sharp line uh, with a lot of intensity, and then off to the side there's a little bump. So the first time he looked at it, he saw a bump there. But the thing is, there were some other bumps in that spectrum. So yes, there was a feature where the Bohr model predicted it, but it'd be hard to make a conclusive case that he had seen an isotope of mass too. So did he do what, what a good scientist does? He eliminated all these possible background uh, no. explanations? Or no. how, how did he finally arrive at something he could call a discovery? Yeah, so, so there was a man who was a scientist at the National Bureau of Standards named Ferdinand Brickwetty, who had recently become, you might say, the top experimental low-temperature physicist in the United States of America. And, and Yuri had known him when Yuri was a junior professor at Johns Hopkins University and Brickwetty was a uh, graduate student there. Yuri had the idea of basically making a still to concentrate heavy isotopes of hydrogen if they existed. So put very simply, what he proposed to Brickwetty was that Brickwetty get a large quantity of liquid hydrogen and then start boiling it off. When you make uh, spirit alcohol, uh, what you do is you take something like a, a wine, which has a low concentration of alcohol in it, you heat it up, and the alcohol molecules, which are quite volatile, boil off more rapidly than other molecules do. And so then you collect the alcohol and you get a nice uh, beverage at the end of the day. <laughs> Forty labors. Forty percent. So, so the the uh, the idea of urea is sort of the inverse of that. You get a whole bunch of liquid hydrogen, and then you sort of boil it off, and hopefully, the lighter molecules will fly away, and so the residue will be enriched in the heavy isotope. Uh, what Brickwetty did, following Yuri's advice, was to take I think about I don't know six to ten liters of um, liquid hydrogen and then boil it away until only one cubic centimeter was left. So he did several stages of this distilling process. So Brickwetty did this at the National Bureau of Standards in Washington, D.C. He sent the samples to Yuri in New York City and then Yuri was able to um, take the spectra of these several stages of enrichment and show that this line that was in the place where the Bohr model said the line of a mass two isotope should be increased in strength in accordance with the expectations of the enrichment of the sample due to this distillation process, whereas the other artifacts didn't change at all. Like so Yuri satisfied himself that the spectral line, the little bump as you call it, this was evidence for deuterium. Yuri got the Nobel Prize in 1934 for this discovery that was published in 1932. Just two years fast, later. It's a fast movement. And the reason was he went many steps further. So a colleague of Brickwetty's at the National Bureau of Standards, a man named Edward Washburn, a remarkable person uh, who was an analytical chemist, 
or an electrochemist, I guess. And he thought that it would be possible to get large quantities of deuterium by a process of electrolysis. That's basically dissociating the water molecule and separating out the heavy water from the light. So he and Yuri worked together, and I think by May of 1932, they would published a paper which showed that this electrolytic process could produce large quantities of deuterium at a modest cost. So in a few months, it went from a, a substance which had only been known in atomic spectroscopy and it had a natural abundance of part in 10 to 1,000 to something that was almost as common as water itself. It happened that there was a company in Norway that had built an electric power plant out in a remote part of the country, a hydroelectric power plant, whose original purpose was to produce fertilizer by an electrical discharge process, getting nitrogen out of the air by a form of electrical discharge. So they built this hydroelectric plant because it had a lot of cheap electrical energy. But it turns out there's a development by uh, Haber and Bosch in Germany, the Haber-Bosch process for making nitrogen, that made this uh, electrical process obsolete. So there was this plant sitting in the middle of nowhere in Norway, and the company realized that, you know, that was a hydroelectric plant, had plenty of electricity and plenty of water. So it started up the industrial production of heavy water. That is, we say H2O is a chemical formula for water. This is D2O, where the D is the chemical symbol for is deuterium. Is it D2O or DHO? Is it, there are many so heavy... It, it, right. So in, in, in nature, of course, um, the HDO is more abundant just because of the, the natural abundance. But you can, you can easily make D2O as well. And only a few years later, there was a very particular, we might even say, uh, world-important reason for having heavy water. And we will conclude this podcast on deuterium with that story. What was heavy water, deuterium water, going to be used for? So deuterium, you might say almost by accident, was of very critical importance in the development of nuclear energy because... It was one of two substances that could scatter neutrons and slow them down without causing nuclear reactions. Now, at the time deuterium was discovered, the neutron was unknown. It was discovered just six weeks later, something like that. Amazing uh, development. But it turned out that deuterium was a substance that was invaluable for controlling the energy distribution of neutrons. So in nuclear reactors, the other substance that's used is uh, ultra-pure graphite. When, when a uranium-235 breaks in half fissions, uh, it spews out a few neutrons, and those neutrons, if they had the right energy, would spawn further uh, fissions. But it's the fact, right, that those neutrons are maybe going a little too fast. You need a moderator in order to get the chain reaction of, yeah. of uranium either in a nuclear rea- what we now call a nuclear reactor for producing power mm-hmm. or in an atom bomb. Right. So the German atom bomb effort never reached the stage of uh, what was done in the United States, but there was a you know, serious attempt to develop nuclear energy capability by the Nazi regime. And um, they decided to 
place all their eggs in the deuterium basket. And so that when they invaded Norway, they took over this plant that was producing deuterium and thereby sort of got a monopoly on the world's supply of deuterium. There's a movie from the mid-1960s called The Heroes of Telemark, the dramatic account of the attempts of the Allies to put that plant out of business. And there's a lot of heroism and, and did they? They, so, so they blew so it up? There were bombing raids that were not all that successful, and there was sabotage. And uh, It's a fantastic story. <laughs> it's, it's going too far. It's sort of to come to the... It's not really the end of the deuterium story, but here's this isotope. Unknown up until Thanksgiving Day in 1931. In 1952, on its 21st birthday, deuterium was used as the fuel of the first hydrogen bomb that was exploded on Iniwetok Atoll. And the man who led the team that produced the deuterium for the first hydrogen bomb was the same Brickweddy. So he was the, the guy that produced the first samples in this little tiny, you know, one gram size. And because of his expertise in low temperature physics, he was called upon to build a massive uh, cryogenic facility out in Boulder, Colorado, to produce the liquid hydrogen, liquid deuterium that would be needed for the uh, American hydrogen bomb program. What's deuterium for nowadays? It's a substance that you can use to replace hydrogen in any molecule. So, for example, if you want to understand complex paths in biological systems, you know, like in foodstuffs, you can make a substitution of deuterium for hydrogen and then that will enable you to, to trace the path of a molecule. The isotope a effect. Object. Yeah, it's an isotope effect. It still has a lot of importance in uh, nuclear power applications. And uh, a lot of the elucidation of molecular structure was also made possible by substituting, making a substitution of a deuterium atom in a complex molecule. That would change the vibrational spacing and enable you to uh, infer things about the uh, molecular structure. There's deuterium produced in the early universe, and uh, just within the past year or two, that's been a subject of interest in studying the universe during its first two or three million years of existence, uh, finding these, these large areas of pristine deuterium and interstellar medium. So deuterium, the uh, first heavier isotope of hydrogen, we use it in hydrogen bombs potentially to kill people. We use it in biomedical research to study important health things, and astronomers use it to study the early universe. Uh, fabulous invention, fabulous discovery, 1932, and that's all we have time for now. Charles Clark and myself, Philip Shuey, from the JQI, please stay tuned for further podcasts with Charles and me. Bye-bye.